Thanks for tuning into this week's message. For more resources and information about Cedar Valley, please visit cvchurch.org. We're starting today in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Turn there in your Bibles if you would. And listen, uh, we'll probably, I I don't know. I've said we could be here a year. I don't really know yet. But I know we'll be here for a while. We'll be in the book of Romans. And, and, And I believe it's good to see you, man. You survived it. That's awesome. Love that. Love to see you here. We were praying for you. And so that's good to see you. So we'll be in Romans for a while. And I'm anxious to see what God is going gonna, is gonna to do, is going to say to us, is going to say to you. I believe he's got a word for us today. And so Romans chapter 1. And when you get that, if you would just stand to your feet, please. And if you're new, again, always a reminder for new folks, we don't go up down the whole morning, right? But we stand when we read our primary text. And the very simple reason is this. We just want to physically acknowledge that we understand this is God speaking to us right now. If you go to some church and they don't stand, it ain't wrong. It's just our thing. It's what we do that says this. This is the word of God, and I believe always that God has a word for us. I'm starting in verse 1, Romans chapter 1. I'll read the first seven verses. It says this. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle, and sent out to preach his good news. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. And he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and the authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them, so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. And you are included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. I'm writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and are called to be his own holy people. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for that there's life and there's truth and there's power in your word. We thank you for the way that you reveal yourself through your word. We thank you, Father God, for the word that you have for us today. We're just expectant. We're excited about what you want to say to us. I I believe this, Father God, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll speak to each individual based on exactly where they're at and on what they need right now. And so, God, give us hearts and minds to receive your word, glorify yourself, draw us to you, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So uh, I would just say this, just to give you a little bit of background, that we're starting on the, on the, on the book of Romans. This is part one of, of this first message, it's part one. But I would say, just to give you some context to the book of Romans, you should know this, that almost without fail, every great revival that's taken place in the history of the church from the New Testament on has, has been uh, started with the book of Romans. It's that significant a book. And it's, I know it's one of those silly things where we say, well, it's the greatest book. It's the second book. It's, it's the scripture. But I'm just saying its power is evidenced by the fact of, of the movements that we've seen that have come out of specifically the book of Romans over time. In about the year 386, uh, there was a man, he was originally from uh, North Africa, and uh, he was a professor at a university in Milan, Italy, and he's just grief-stricken by the wickedness of his own life. 
And somehow God is beginning to speak to him and, and make him realize the wickedness of his own life. And he's broken. He's completely broken. And he's sitting in the garden of a very good friend. And as he's sitting there, he says he reported that he heard the voice of a child. And the child was speaking in Latin, but what he heard was, read the book. Read the book. And he looked down at his feet, and there was a scroll. It's 386. They don't have books. There's a scroll. And he grabs a scroll, and he opens it, and it is the book of Romans. And he just, he just opens it, and right there, and he begins to read. This is what he read. Because we belong, this is a guy who's mourning over his own wickedness. Because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness, or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living, or in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. And he said as soon as he got done reading that, instantly he felt a healing, and he sensed the call of God on his life. That's Augustine of Hippo, or, who we know as St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, one of the most powerful church fathers, one of the most influential men in church history. It was St. Augustine. You have men like Martin Luther. Martin Luther led the Protestant Reformation. It's one of the reasons that, that there's a Protestant church today. And it was Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was radically impacted by the book of Romans, as he continued to preach, hey, we're not saved by the grace of God. We're, we're, we're saved by the grace of God, not by, by works that we do, right? It's men like William Tyndale. William Tyndale was one of the great Bible translators. Did you know this, that the early church believed that it was evil and wicked for you to have a Bible that you could read? Did you know that? That the early church said, no, 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 no. We'll read it to you. We'll tell you what it says. You just listen to us. William Tyndale was killed at the stake because he was translating the Bible into, into the language that the people could read. He was radically, his report is he was radically transformed by the book of Romans. You have men like John Calvin, John Wesley, you have the, the Swiss uh, theologian, Frederick Godet. These men all testified that their lives were radically changed by specifically the book of Romans. And so I'm excited to see what will our church look like when we finish? What will you look like? What will I be like when, when we finish the study through the book of Romans? And, and I'm anxious to hear what God's going to say, what God's going to say to you personally, what God's going to say to me personally, what God's going to say to our church and, and, and how it'll transform our church. So this is one of the most interesting quotes, and I just love this, that I heard. It was said this, that the book of Romans will delight the greatest logicians and captivate the mind of the consummate genius, yet it will bring tears to the humblest soul and refreshment to the simplest mind. And then I love this. It says, it will knock you down and then lift you up, Right? I think there's the potential for the book of Romans to change us if we'll listen, if we'll heed, if we'll obey what God has to say. So we're just going to start in today with the text. The text starts with this in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. It says, this letter is from Paul. Now, you can't really understand the book if you don't have the context of the author, of the writer. And I often explain this about Paul because I think it's very interesting. Paul would have originally been known as Saul. Saul was his Jewish name. He was actually named after Saul, the very first king that Israel ever had. That's who he was named after. So it tells you something of, his, of the heritage of his family. And he grew up in Tarsus. Tarsus was of Cilicia. It's on the northeast coast of the Mediterranean. It's in modern-day Turkey. And what's important about Tarsus that you know this, and, and this is why Paul is so gifted and so suited for what uh, God had called him to, is that Tarsus is, is a, very, it's a university town. Uh, it's very cosmopolitan. And so Paul would have been steeped in the Greco-Roman culture of his day. At the same time, he grew up in this devoutly Jewish home. 
And so Paul is, Saul, Paul is, is steeped in Jewish heritage and Jewish tradition. He had the greatest rabbi of his day. His rabbi was Gamaliel, known as the greatest rabbi of the day. Gamaliel is the grandson of Hillel. And if you ask any Jews, he is the greatest, the most famous rabbi of all times. So here you have Paul, steeped in Greco-Roman culture, steeped in Jewish tradition. Because he's so steeped in the Jewish law, so steeped in the Jewish tradition, he hated, get this, he hated Jesus. He hated Jesus' followers. He hated this whole new movement called Christianity, which is really originally called The Way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They were known as The Way, and Saul hated them. In fact, he was in Jerusalem when Stephen, and some of you would know this, Stephen was the first martyr, the first man killed because he declared and professed faith in Christ. And not only was Saul good with it, Saul, we are told in Acts, stood there and held all the men's jackets. They're taking their robes off. They're taking their jackets. Why? Because they're, they're picking up rocks and they're stoning Stephen to death. They throw him down in the pit and they're stoning him to death. And Saul stands there and watches the whole thing. And by holding their robes, he is saying, I'm good with this. This is appropriate. He watched Stephen get stoned to death. And not, not only was, was he not just horrified what he saw, just the opposite. Saul is emboldened and he's empowered. And so Saul goes to the high priest right there in Jerusalem and he asks for a letter. And he takes the letter with him and he's going to head to Damascus. Damascus would be about 160 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And the whole reason he's taking this letter and he's going to Damascus is so that he has the authority. So that if he finds other people who say, I'm of this way, I follow Jesus, I believe Jesus is the Christ, I believe he's the Messiah, I believe that he rose the dead. If Saul finds those people, he can drag them back to Jerusalem and have them tried and hopefully executed. So now this Saul, the writer of the book of Romans, this Paul, he's on his way to Damascus. And while he's on his way, and we read this in the book of Acts again, he's blinded by a bright flashing light just instantly, sudden, and he's knocked to the ground. And when he's knocked to this ground, he hears this voice, and this voice says out loud, audibly, and he's traveling with a party, and he hears the voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul is on the ground. He's been knocked down by this blinding light, and he says, who is this? And he says, I am the Lord Jesus Christ. And Saul is grieved immediately because he knows that the blood that he's been shedding is the blood of God's people. And so he has a radical transformation. I mean, his life, the guy who was killing Christians, is not only, not only is he no longer killing Christians, dragging them into prison, right? Dragging them to be tried. He's not only not doing that, but actually he spends the rest of his life at great cost himself financially, Physically, he's lost all privilege and reputation, and he travels the entire Mediterranean Rim, and he's preaching the name of Jesus. He's proclaiming that Christ is the risen Savior. He's planting churches. He became the greatest church planter the, the, the church has ever known. And so the reason I tell you that is so that when you read writings of Paul, and specifically as we're going to be studying through Romans, you need to know this. This is not a kid who grew up in Sunday school just memorizing the right answers. This is not a kid who, ever, who never questioned faith, who never questioned God. This is a guy who has wrestled with it and was literally knocked down by a blinding light and confronted by the resurrected Christ. That's who wrote this, right? It says this letter is from Paul, and then he's describing himself. He says, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. I'm chosen by God to be an apostle. This word slave is really interesting because it doesn't bring up all the negative thoughts and the hideous thoughts that we think about slavery. It's a Greek word, doulos, and it's almost a term of endearment. 
It's almost as if instead of me being a slave and I'm shackled, this is Paul saying, oh, no, no, brother, I have chained myself to Jesus because of my great love for him. It also talks about the fact that this, he, he's not just free to go. He doesn't see himself as I'm just free to go whenever I want. I've been bought with a price. Sometimes translations translate this as a servant of Christ. It's a stronger word than that. He sees himself as, as a slave. Man, I was bought with a price. And then he says this, and I was sent out. To do what? You, you mean you're sent, there's gotta be a purpose. And he says this, I've been sent out to preach his, here it is, you ready for this? Good news. I've been sent out to preach the good news. Now in a lot of translations, you'll see it, I've been sent out to preach the gospel. When you see good news, you think gospel. And anytime you see the word gospel, you think good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it has the same root as evangelist. An evangelist in those days, in their original language, an evangelist, one who, who almost an euangelist, would stand up on a hill, they were Roman, and they would stand up on a hill, and they would watch a battle. And the Romans are gonna do battle. And as soon as they start to see like, oh, we're winning, we're winning, the Uangeliist, like this evangelist, would turn and run to their town and proclaim victory, proclaim the good news. That's their job, tell the story, that's their job. Just tell the story. And so here, right, Paul is talking about this good news, this gospel, and now he's going to start to give us some clues, because we're going to focus a bit on this good news, and what is this good news, and where does this good news from, and why is this good news good? Paul starts to describe it, and he says this, God promised this, here it is, this good news, this euangelion, this good news, this gospel. He promised it long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So you should know this, that this wasn't something that just mistakenly happened. This wasn't something that just happened, it was, was an afterthought of God's. God has been planning this centuries and eons and millennial and eternity. This has been God's plan to bring out this good news, this gospel. He said it was told in the, in the, in, by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Did you know this? And this is a weird thought, that in the Old Testament, when some of these prophets wrote some of these prophecies about this Christ that would come, did you know that they didn't even know what they were writing? Is that a weird thought? They were like, oh, I put it down. I wonder what the heck that is. Like, it was, it was just a weird thought to them. They didn't fully understand what they were writing. Paul says, this stuff has been planned from before time began. began. This was God's plan. Then he's going to give us a little more clue. He says, the good news, oh, okay, it's about his son. It's about God's son. This, this gospel, this good news, it's about Jesus. That's what this whole thing is about. Now he's going to describe Jesus just a little bit for us. He says, speaking of Christ, he said, in his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. Part of this gospel, part of this story, part of this good news is about the lineage and the heritage of Jesus. It goes all the way back to Israel. That's part of this story, that Jesus came here and lived as a man. He was human like we are, but Paul doesn't leave it there. He goes on and says, and also, along with being this earthly creature, he was shown to be the son of God. It speaks of his divinity. This is all part of the story. This is all part of the gospel, the Ungelion, the good news. It's all part of it. And the question would be, how was, he, how was he shown to be the son of God? Like, how do we know that Jesus wasn't just another good guy, moral teacher, maybe a prophet? Uh, actually, he was shown to be the son of God, and here's how. When he was raised from the dead 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus raised from the dead, and it instantly validates who he is. Well, this is no mortal being. He lives here earthly like we live, but he's more than that. He's the son of God. The gospel, the good news, is a story about him. And if there's any doubt, if you just think, mm, are we sure that's who it's talking about? Paul, Paul takes all the doubt out of it. He goes, listen, he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. That, that's what the good news is. It's the story. And, and I said this, today is part one, right? Next week will be part two. And I think partly in our culture, we've, we've, we've sold the story short. So I'm just telling you, if you're here this week, I think it's important that you're here next week so you get the full story. If you know that you're going to be here next week, try to be here today as well. <laughs> it sounded good up here. And so here becomes really the question. If this is indeed the good news... Then, and you know I love questions. I think you should be asking questions all the time. I think the logical question is this, why is this good news good? Or what's so good about the good news? It's the story of Jesus, gotcha, check. Why is that so good? Like, what's the big deal about that? And we're gonna find out that this, the good news is good because it's the answer to the bad news. I mean, like, I really believe this, and I know every generation has had some point in time where they've said this. I believe we live in extremely interesting days. I think we live in fascinating days. Probably every generation would say that. If you talk to my father, he'd say, oh, you know, this, these were, I think these are really interesting days, and for a lot of reasons. Here's one of the things that's just fascinating to me uh, about the, the age that we live in, is that we live in the age of relativism, which is very interesting to me. Because not only does relativism say, well, you know, we don't really know what's right. That's up to your definition. But we would say the same thing about wrong. And so because we're so caught up in the, you know, I know my truth, to which I always just want to say, brother, your truth is not the truth. But, but because we live in such an age like that, we're like, right is what's right with me. You know, wrong is what's right, wrong according to me. Because of that, I'm just telling you, and some of you experience this and you know this, that when you're in the church, anytime you bring up the word sin, oh, no, just, just wait a minute. No, just wait a minute. That, that's, that's your thing. That's your thing. And for good reason, and I think we should own this, the church has spent plenty of time, historically, the church has, has spent plenty of time pointing our fingers at folks. Yes? Looking down our nose at folks. Judging folks. We're better than you are. Hey, that stuff's real. And if you've ever experienced that, I, I, I don't know. If I, if I heard your story, I'd probably agree with you. But if you've ever experienced that and you came back today and you're in a church or you're online today, kudos to you. I'm thrilled that you're here. Your story is real. I'd probably agree with you. But nonetheless, anytime we bring up the word sin or we start to talk about sin, folks get real defensive and they push back. And so... What I want to do is, is just help us understand, listen, at its very core, at its very core, sin is an affront to a holy God. And because of that, because God is holy, it's his core, it separates us from God. Those are all great theological ideas. What I'd like to talk to you about just for a minute is, I want you to see, listen, our faith is just not about us personally, us practically, but there is a personal and practical aspect to it. 
And so I want to talk a little bit about why do we care personally? What's the practical aspect of it? Now, just so you know this, the actual word sin is the Greek word hamartia, and it's an old archer's term. It's an old archer's term. It literally means to miss the mark. It means to fail. Now, men, you will understand this very well because we talk about how different men and women are, right? Like this is just the way men and women are wired. If three women get together and they're having lunch, their names are Kim and their names are Kay and, and their names are Judy. Men don't operate that way. Men's names are Stinky, Fathead, and you know what I'm saying? This, this is how men operate. And so our group, when we, when we golf on Fridays with a number of different guys, if I shank one, which is rare that I would shank when I miss hit a ball. I'm just saying. But if I, when, right, guys just feel the need to step in and encourage and lift me up and build me up. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Okay, so I see this phrase sin, this hamartia, it's very the same. It, it, it's very similar in that guys would out, literally they'd be out and they'd be firing arrows and let's just say they're firing at a particular branch and they miss right? The other guy's like, whoop, sinned again. Nice sin. Way to go. Like, that was the term. It's an archer's term. It means you missed the mark. It means you failed. But it's far more than just missing the mark. So at its deepest core, and I'll give you this phrase and then we'll flesh it out just a little bit. At its deepest core, sin is really the destruction of shalom. Now, that's a phrase you might want to write down. You just want to soak this in for a minute. Sin is the destruction of shalom. Now, because very few of you in the room are Jewish, right? Might be a few. I've seen a few that I know you're Jewish. Might be very few. But we tend to just oversimplify shalom. And we just say shalom is peace, right? Hey, shalom, shalom. And we just say, hey, peace, peace, peace. It's way more than that. Shalom is way more than just peace. Further, shalom is, means to make full restitution. It is to restore. It means to make something good or to make it whole. And even on a more global level than that, shalom is, is crea for creation to be in universal thriving, to be in delight, to be in wholeness. Now, all of these things are true on a global level. They're all true on a global level. But let me also say this. Shalom is also true on a very personal level. True shalom, true shalom means for you to be at peace, but it means for you to be made, just to be in full restitution, to you to, for you to be right with the creator. It means for you to be restored or to be made good or to be made whole. True shalom means for you to be thriving. It's for you to be in delight and in wholeness. Okay, now stop and think. Sin is the destruction of shalom. You say, you know, that, 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 that sin thing, that's your judgment. That's, listen to me. There's a very practical aspect of this. Yes, it's, it, it's an affront. It's an offense to a holy God. That is absolutely true. And that's the most significant piece. And yes, it absolutely separates us from God. But you should know this about sin. That sin, it, it, there is no restitution. You are not right with God. You're not good. You're not whole. You're not thriving. You're not in delight and in wholeness. That is God's intention for you. That's God's intention for me. That's God's intention. And so really, because of sin, there are four inevitable and highly destructive consequences 
of sin, because of what it does, because it's the destruction of shalom, four very significant destructive consequences. These are inevitable. Number one, it's self-love. Sin brings self-love. Sin is always about selfishness. It's self-love. It's pride. Now think about this. The most beautiful angel in heaven was Satan, Lucifer, the devil. It's all the same name. And in, if you read Isaiah 14, there are five statements that, that Lucifer makes, I will, I will, I will, I will. And he's trying to assert himself over and above God. And because of that, what happens? God banishes him from heaven. There's instant separation. Right? Now think about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are in the garden, and God has not only said it's good, he said it's very good. And they're in the garden, and there's peace. And Adam and Eve say this, I will. Right? We'll know the difference between good and evil. We'll know. And they're starting to assert themselves. They want to be God. They want to be like God. They want to be above God. And so what does God do? Vanishes them from the garden. There is separation. And here's the crazy thing about this self-love. We're preoccupied with self, with self, with self, with bringing it all into self. And yet the net result of this self-love is actually loneliness. We don't bring things to us. We end up becoming more lonely. We're empty. We're completely isolated, alone, by ourselves, and ultimately it leads to despair. That, that's an inevitable, unavoidable consequence of sin. You say, well, it's just it's sin to me, Neil. No, no, I'm saying it's bad news, and it's bad news, yes, between you and God, and it's bad news on a very practical level. The second unavoidable aspect of the bad news is guilt. Now, here's the best way to understand guilt. If you're a sports fan and you go to a Major League Baseball game and nobody pitches more than about three or four innings anymore, but let's just say a guy goes nine innings. And after nine innings, if you see him in the locker room after the game, what will he almost always have on his shoulder? Packed in ice. It's packed in ice. Because nine innings of this torque, right? The shoulder is sore. What's the design of pain? God actually designed the human body for pain. Because pain says, you can't keep that up, you will destroy the shoulder. You can't keep doing that. that. That's the design of pain. And I would say it's not just on a physical level. If you're just on the go like this, grinding, grinding, go, 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 constantly, 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 you might start to have some physical afflictions from that. Maybe it's just headaches. Maybe you actually get sick. Maybe you break down. Maybe you have emotional issues, right? That's the design of guilt. Guilt is the exact same thing. God has designed us with guilt. Guilt is when you start to sense it and you go, that's probably not right. I probably shouldn't be doing this. You get that feeling. If you were to enter into an adulterous relationship and you start to go, this might not be right. Right. That's God's warning sign. You need to turn it around. And if you continue down that path and you continue down that path and you don't heed guilt, then you get all kinds of wonderful things like fear. You start to develop fear and anxiety, sleeplessness. There are spiritual and physical afflictions and ultimately leads to the most powerful of human emotions, which is shame. Guilt and shame are not the same thing. Guilt talks about what you've done. Shame says who you are. Shame says you are no good. You are worthless. That's because we don't heed guilt, right? So now you have all this self-love, which is leading to despair. Now you have all of this guilt, which ultimately leads to shame, right? 
Once those get to bubble and those get to simmer just a little while, there's a third one. This is more of the bad news. This is meaninglessness. There's no meaning. There's no meaning to life. I'm buried in shame. I'm full of self-love. Like, these are all consequences of the bad news of sin. And when this meaningless goes on long enough, long enough, long enough, now you start to ask really significant questions. You're totally confused. What am I doing here? And what's the meaning of life? What, what, what really is truth? Like, this is just confusion. It starts out, and, and there's all this self-love, and, and that's going to lead, right, just to despair. And then it works into guilt. And guilt ultimately is, is going to head down the road, down the road, until you get to shame. And now there's meaningless, and you're like, I'm a bit confused about life. And then the final one and kind of the, the partner of meaninglessness is hopelessness. Because there's been all this self-love, because there's been all this guilt, because now there's, there's all this confusion. Right. When you get to, meaning, to hopelessness, hopelessness just says this. What's the point? You know, it's really interesting. So social scientists and psychologists have done all these studies, and they've studied people who have attempted suicide but have failed. This is one of the most interesting things to me, that when they attempted suicide, almost all of them acknowledge this. I didn't really see it as a, as a solution. I, I just thought there was no solution. They didn't even see death as a solution. That's, that's what full, real hopelessness is. It's like, what's the point? Even in death, there wasn't a point. They just didn't know what else to do. These are the unavoidable consequences of the bad news and the bad news of sin. Because what we see right now, just so you know this, when we see all the bad news that's going on, and you see all the bad news, the things that are going on in the culture, and, and you, we see, yeah, we see things like recession, and, and we see things like inflation, we see all that. But we see the wars that are going on, the senseless wars, when we see the violent crimes that are going on, just so you know this, everything that we're seeing currently that is on a global level is really a magnification of what's going on in the hearts of people. And so that's why, just for me, and I'm just going to make a, a brief political statement, so I'm not, I'm not espousing any politics, but I'm just saying, that's why, and I'm, I'm, I think we're blessed. I, I love the fact that we have people at this church that run for political offices. And I know some of them know their hearts. But this is why, for me, it's a little overall confusing when we start to think that politics are going to fix the problems of the world. No, what fixes the problems of the world are the good news. The, these are heart issues. This is a good news issue. So I would say this, man, pray. Vote as the Holy Spirit leads you to vote. Absolutely. I trust you. It's not my job to tell you who to vote for or how to vote. That's not my job. People who wonder, like, when is he going to say something about such and such candidate? I'm like, that ain't happening. Right? But I would say this, don't be confused. While I would say be actively involved, don't be confused that the solution is the good news. Right? There's no, there's no question about that. And so you just, you just look at all these things. This is, this is what sin does. And I'm just talking on a practical level. It's ultimately despair. It's ultimately shame. It's ultimately confusion to the point where you get to the point where you go, what's the point? Like, these are very real. And I'm saying, I believe some of us in the room, we've all experienced this from time to time. We experience the guilt, and if we don't turn, we experience the shame. Right? We experience the self-love, and eventually we just feel isolated. We feel lonely. Or we start to ask those serious, what am I doing here? What's the point of all this? Those are all consequences. They are unavoidable. They're so destructive. These 
This, all of this, this is the bad news. And then Jesus walked right into the picture. And Jesus is the good news. And the good news is the answer for the bad news. Like God has this taken care of from long before this was prophesied. This was God's plan from before the beginning of time. If you actually think that God watched down here and said, things aren't going so well, I got a different plan. You're crazy. This has been God's plan from before the beginning of time. It was prophesied thousands of years ago about this good news. Now, Paul is going to go on to talk about this good news. Watch what he says it does. He says, this good news, this story about Jesus, this is the power of God at work, and this is what it does. It saves everyone who believes. Listen to me, everyone. If you think you're not everyone this morning, you don't understand everyone. Everyone means every single one. It's good for everyone. And so, I, I hope we're grabbing that this morning. Paul goes on in verse 17. He says, this good news, by the way, it tells us how God makes us right in sight. Did you notice that? It's God who makes us right. It's not what we do. It's not what we earn. This good news is going to be good news about how we're made right with God. And then he goes on to say this in 17. This is accomplished from start to finish by what? By acting right. By behaving right, by doing the right things, that's how, no, that's actually not how it happens. Now watch this, because this is counterintuitive, especially in our culture. This is accomplished from start to finish by, how did that happen? Now, don't be confused. This word faith in the Greek is the word pistis, and it's, 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 very, it's very confusing to us, but pistis isn't just like, I believe that. I have a cognitive belief. I will acknowledge that. No, no, no. This word pistis is an allegiance. It's an ongoing belief, right? He says it's, it's accomplished from start to finish by faith. In fact, Paul goes on to tell us, the same author, same writer, writing to the church in Ephesus, he's going to be very clear about this. He says it is by grace you're saved when you believe that you're saved by grace when you believe grace the kindness of God it's a gift of God when you believe it's the same word pistis it's the same word faith believe it's the same word when you not just it's a, not just a cognitive recognition it's an ongoing allegiance you've placed your complete trust Right? You all sat in chairs this morning. I can tell you that that chair will hold you up, but if you don't sit in it, you may not really trust it. You put your weight in that chair. You sit in that chair. You understand what I'm saying? It's not just, hey, I believe there's a Jesus. No, no, no. You sit in it. You put your weight in it. You put your trust in it. Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9, and he said, this is, again, counterintuitive. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. I talk to so many people all the time, and, and this conversation will come up about life and life after life, and they go, well, you know, I think I've been pretty good. I think I've been pretty good. I think I've done a pretty good job. I think I've done some good things. I'm like, man, you take comfort in that, and I'm on the flip side where I'm saying, I'm so glad it's not based on that. It's a gift. It's the grace of God. It's the kindness of God. 
when we place our faith in Christ. And so, man, you just need to know this this morning, that the good news is for anyone who wants the good news. Do you want the good news? Do you want the good news? Like, would you just like to say, man, I'm tired of the despair. I'm tired of shame. I'm tired of just being confused. I'm tired of asking the question, what's the point? Right. The good news is the answer to all of the bad news. And it's good news for anybody who wants the good news. I don't know where everybody's at this morning. I don't know where you're at. I, I know where I'm at. I know I still have struggles. And I'm grateful that the good news is the answer for that. And so some of you in here, you may have said, well, yeah, I've never actually believed. I've never, that whole idea of pistis, I've never put my trust in Christ. I've never sat in the chair. I've never, I've never created this allegiance, right? I would say to you, before we leave this morning, there'll be an opportunity for you to start that journey today. You could actually start that. You could say, okay, I'm gonna begin that journey today. There'll be, there'll be that chance for you today. And some of you are gonna say, you know, I've been going to church forever, Neil, and I, and I come here every Sunday, and I, but I'm kind of cold. If I'm really honest, I've grown kind of cold. Listen to me, the good news is for you too. The good news is for you, right? Maybe today would be a day when you hey, say, hey, I, I was on the journey, and I pulled over on the side of the road, and I've just been sitting here for a while. Right, it's time for you to get back on the road. And some of you, if you're honest, you say, ah, oh, I started the journey, and then, whew, I just took a sidetrack, like I just went off the road. And I'll say, guess what? The good news is for you today. One of the things pray this every Sunday. And I'm not always sure why this has resonated with me so strongly, but this always resonates with me. Every Sunday. In my own quiet time and with our team. I pray for the last timers. And, and maybe you're a last timer here today. And he said, oh man, I have felt the church point their finger at me, look down their nose at me, try to hand me shame. Like I've felt that and I'm done. I'm just done. I came this last time because I'm making a spouse happy, because I'm making a parent happy, because I'm making a kid happy, because I'm making a friend happy who, who just wouldn't quit inviting me and it's driving me crazy. I said, okay, maybe you're one of the last timers here this morning and you've just said, this is it for me. I want you to know this. I want you to hear me loud and clear. I just Everybody just pay attention for one second. If that's you, the good news is for you. Christ came, Christ died for you. And the despair and the loneliness that you feel, right? And the shame that you feel. And, and, and the, when you've gotten to that point where you're just like, man, it's all just meaningless, right? When you, when you feel that and you just ask yourself literally, what's the stinking point? 
if you got there. See, the good news is for anybody who wants the good news. It's for you. It's for anybody. You don't have to earn it. There's not a point system. You have to believe. And today is the day where you start that journey. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. We're grateful for your servant, Paul, your slave, Paul, this man whose life was radically changed because of the good news. We thank you that you sent him and, and that he was a messenger of this good news. We thank you that we're recipients of his good news, that your plan from before the beginning of time was that we would hear the good news. And the good news is a story about Jesus. We thank you, Father. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you sent him. We thank you that he suffered and died for our sins, that you validated that he was a worthy sacrifice because he raised from the dead. That's something only God can do. And so you've you made your point, God, and we hear it. And I'm praying, Father, that we would all be impacted by that this morning, the way that I've been impacted by that, the power of your word, the power of the good news, the loving God that you are. You made a plan. You wanted to redeem us. You wanted to buy us back. And so we thank you for that.